Hello everyone and welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach and I'm your host on behalf of the Peace Alliance for the ongoing series Restorative Justice on the Rise. This audio archive features the principal pioneer of the global peace building movement and founder of the Peace and Conflict Resolution Academic Departments internationally. Johan Galtung. Dr. Galtung joined us for an hour telecouncil Sunday, January 6th. Please listen in and enjoy, and please also check out the website for his organization, Transcend, which is transcend.org. That's transcend.org. And for more information about this series, which is free and ongoing, and to access all of the archives for this series, please go to dopeace.us. That's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. Thank you, and enjoy this audio with Dr. Johan Galtung. Hello, everyone, and such a warm welcome. On behalf of the Peace Alliance to you all, we're here today for this very special edition of our ongoing telecouncil series, Restorative Justice on the Rise. And I am your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and really would like to extend an invitation to each of you today and with each of our councils to treat this hour together, which is a virtual circle of sorts, as your forum for this important discussion, one that aims to provide connection, education, and relevant action pertaining to this huge moment in time concerning justice and peace. During the month of January, also, I'd like to mention, we are especially honoring the true way showers in restorative justice, our global indigenous. Although one month of weekly telecouncils is hardly enough to cover the important and rich territory of our indigenous practices and ways, we hope that this month continues to augment the Western embracing and understanding of restorative justice as nothing new in our world even as it appears to be new in the Western United States, in the United States itself. I'd like to also invite you to please go to our website at dopeace.us, that's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S, and click on the tab, Restorative Justice, for a growing list of resources and for all archives that are free of this series, which is now in its second season. Next week, we will be speaking with Kim Workman, who is a Maori elder. And in the weeks to come, we will be speaking with Grandmother Mona Palaka, Sequoia Trueblood, and uh, Woman Stands Shining, Pat McCabe. So please check our series schedule, again, at dopeace.us. Before I welcome our distinguished speaker today, just a reminder again that this forum is meant for active participation and dialogue and is a, a platform for you. We will pause during the conversation multiple times to field live questions. To do that, if you have a comment or question, simply press 1 on your telephone keypad. So in thinking today about how to welcome into this circle our distinguished, distinguished guest speaker, I really didn't have quite the words because the, this gentleman has such global um, 
he's given the 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 world such such service over his entire lifetime and is respected and honored by visionaries, leaders, educators, academics, people on the ground all over the world doing this work. So um, as you know, Mr. Johann Galtung, again, has given our world a tremendous offering. His lifelong service to conflict transformation and peace is as valuable as the contributions of some of our beloved way showers, such as Mother Teresa, Gandhi, Martin Luther, Luther King Jr., and others. He is a global pioneer of the modern peace-building movement and founder of Transcend International. He's also known for some of his extraordinary abilities in um, mediation and conflict resolution in Cuba and otherwise. And many of you reference his prolific works considered to be key elements of any peace-builder's library. And so just want to make sure that uh, given that we're conversing with Mr. Galtung today from Spain, I wanted just to make sure that he's still here on the line with us. It looks like he is. And to welcome I'm you, Mr. Galtung. Thank you. Thank you <laughs> and this, I'm afraid, was an introduction to me. I am at the end of a cold, <laughs> but I will be able to manage. <laughs> okay, great. Sorry about <laughs> that. You know, we have a very sort of uh, deceitful weather here in Spain. It's extremely beautiful, 20 degrees Celsius during the middle of the day, but then a cold wind and cold during the night. So it's exactly the kind of thing that produces a cold contradiction. And mm. contradiction is a key element in these studies. Mm. Well, t today, Mr. Galtung, if you would... Begin with us, perhaps with a story or a sharing of some sort of, of, of your journey over uh, quite a long period of time of, of giving your life to peace building and conflict transformation. And then we'll go into a bit about um, restorative justice's roots and uh, go from there. So just, just again, a warm welcome to you. Well, if I should take a story that is very easy to understand and um, not too um, long, it would be my mediation between Ecuador and Peru. And I was not the only one in that game, but maybe playing an important role. You see, <laughs> the point is actually so simple. You have a territory up in the Andes, and we don't have to go into the history of it. It's 5,000 meters altitude. We are talking about 500 square kilometers. And uh, the question is, to whom does it belong, to Ecuador or Peru? And both of them are equally convinced it belongs to us. In other words, they have exactly the same goal. Conflict has nothing to do with whether you have the same goal or different goals. Conflict has to do with whether you have contradictory, incompatible goals. So. They then came to the conclusion that the only way to solve this conflict was to draw a line called the border and divide the territory into two called a compromise. The question was how to draw, draw the line. And they were fighting for 54 years, bloody wars, for that to happen. And you see, the story model is then simply this, sitting in a room in a restaurant in Guatemala City, prepared by somebody high up in the Guatemala Foreign Ministry. I was with the ex-president of Ecuador who 
asked for my advice about how to draw the line since they evidently hadn't found the trick. And my answer was, Your Excellency, instead of drawing a line, why don't you administer the territory together? A two-state zone with a natural park, for instance. In Spanish, Zona Binacional, Parque Natural. Well, that became the solution three years later. And you see, Molly, the point about the story is that you go beyond, you transcend. You um, listen carefully to what the parties want. They both want the whole territory. And then you ask yourself, could there be some way in which they could have access to the whole territory? In other words, some both and. Don't call it win-win, that says nothing. <clears throat> that only means that both of them accept it. It's what we call transcend. You have to create a new reality. And that reality is a two-state zone. Well, three years later, the two-state zone became a treaty signed in Brazil. And today, 2013, we are, if you will, 15 years later. And the zone is a reality. It has functioned extremely well. And as far as I can understand, there hasn't been a single killing of, uh, let us say, uh, lust for revenge for the lives lost, and they were numerous. And I think one can even safely say that quite a lot of lives were saved, because it sounds, as far as I can understand, that Lima had prepared an air attack on Quito in order to define who was the winner of that long, long, long-lasting war situation. Um, to summarize, it's a question of finding that kind of overarching solution. And don't mm. call it common ground. Well, there is ground in the sense that they both want territory, but the point is to rather go beyond. One has to have a little creativity. And that is perhaps my first message. Mm. Now, uh, Mr. Galtung, you, you witnessed your father be arrested um, in Nazi Germany. You, you, am I correct in, in saying that you grew up in Oslo? <laughs> and in the sense that Nazi Germany had occupied my country, Norway, uh -huh. where my father was a physician and a former prominent politician. And he was arrested with the possibility that he might be executed as a hostage if the English were bombing Oslo. So you can imagine how nervous my mother and I were because they were bombing quite frequently. Mm -hmm. But he came out safe and alive, of course marked by the concentration camp, which was in Norway, close to Oslo. Mm -hmm. So... That was a kind of defining event in my life, as you can imagine, when the state security police came and took him. A cold winter night in 1944, and then kept him for 14 months. Mm. And how old were you at the time? I was at that time 13. Uh -huh. And the relationship between my father and myself was a very warm one. 
we uh, agreed on almost nothing and had a beautiful intergeneration dialogue going on about mm. religion and politics and military service and so on. All of that, I was missing him tremendously and what took shape in my little mind was, of course, this isn't right. This is mm-hmm. not what should happen. Nobody has the right to separate a father and a son. Nobody has the right to do such a thing. And then generalizing from the family to the country, from the country to the world, and out of it came the motivation for peace studies. Uh-huh. So I was So that's the background, you if you will. Yes. Yes, I, I wondered if that, that might have uh, um, influenced the service that you've brought out into the world in such an uh, incredibly wide way. And um, it, it's very interesting to think about our individual experiences as deep catalysts for the service that we provide the world in, in peace building and beyond. And I just, I just I think uh, that's would really like important. to. There is a personal story behind it all. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we're here in this month of January and and ongoing, um, not just simply limited to this month. Recognizing and honoring the importance of indigenous perspectives and ways in restorative justice. So. I'd really love, given that we have an hour together today and it's already um, a quarter past, could you begin to share with us where you and I so beautifully began just a few weeks ago in our email about the Polynesian roots of restorative justice and, and share with us a bit about what, how, how you see restorative justice generally or specifically, however you choose. Well, maybe we should start just with some uh, thinking about the word justice, which is very ambiguous. And uh, you can make a distinction between criminal justice and social justice. And social justice is distributive, distribution so that everybody has, for instance, equal opportunity or even a relatively high level of equality in life. And equity, but they interact in such a way that they get about the same out of it. Now, this is good, this is peace, particularly the equity part of it. (laughs) Sorry, that will happen a couple of times. Then you have the criminal justice, and here we have punitive justice and restorative justice. And the problem comes with punitive justice. And I'm a little bit skeptical when people talk about peace with justice because I have a feeling that behind it is a kind of desire to smuggle in punitive justice. And punitive justice is violence. Somebody has committed violence, a perpetrator, there is a victim, and then the state sees itself entitled to retribute by committing violence against the perpetrator. And the idea is that the sum of two violences somehow is zero. When the sum of two violences is two violences, and sometimes more, because it may lead to a chain of revenge. And this is where restorative justice enters, trying to cut that, let us say, chain and lead us in a different direction. 
And I think mm-hmm. the point about restorative justice is in a sense well put in the word restorative. It's to restore the perpetrator. To what? As a member of society, as a member of the community. Now, the usual way of punishing by means of prison, let alone capital punishment, certainly do not restore the person, but marginalizes the person. And the prison functions as a school for more crimes. I've been there myself as a conscientious objector six months, and um, together with uh, the usual assortment of criminals in the prison. And I must say, it's a miracle if anybody can come out of that one in any sense restored. So here comes the genius of the Ho'oponopono, you were mentioning Polynesia. And Ho'oponopono is Polynesian, Hawaiian version. And it means to set, that's Ho. Pono is straight, right, to set right. And uh, it's a process. And it has a perpetrator and it has a victim. And it has a circle. People sitting in a circle, which you find in very many societies. Now, that is very different from the architecture of a court, where you have a judge high up on a platform, and you have behind that some serious looking drapery. In front of it, you have several levels. Down at the floor, you have the perpetrators, and you may have the victim too, but the victim is somehow forgotten. The important thing is the state that's represented by the judge and the attorney, attorney general in some cases, and, of course, the whole machinery of the police behind that. Now, in that circle, things are happening. And the way I experienced it in Hawaii, put it down to five stages, and I can say it very quickly. Uh, stage one is very simple. There is a wise person, and the WP, wise person, is usually a woman, and the qualification is to have participated in Ho'oponopono, let us say, 20 times. So they have a good idea about what it is about. There's no school, there's no diploma. Age, I often say, being a woman and having white hair are good qualifiers to start with. So what happens then is that the wise person asks the victim and the perpetrator to present their versions of what happens. And somebody takes notes of that. Uh, All of this is fairly, if you will, common sense, and you find it all over the world in one way or the other. And uh, there may be one point that is new. Uh, The wise person will always also ask the perpetrator, why did you do it? In other words, inviting the perpetrator to present his or her side, angle, perspective, spin, if you will, on it. Sometimes it's a wide spin. Sometimes it's an extremely important angle. And then comes the second phase, which is entirely different. And this is where, to my mind, the novelty comes in, which is lost by those who imported the concept of restorative justice. And that is the importance of the distinction between 
acts of commission and acts of omission. So the wise person simply looks at the mother, let us say, or the perpetrator, and asks the question, what did you do to prevent this from happening? Whereupon the mother may say, not enough. I tried, but I should have done more. What more could you have done, the wise person would say. So you see, we are now mapping the acts of omission. What the others could have done but didn't do, not only what the perpetrator did, the act of commission, which was wrong. It hit the victim, and the victim has good arguments. So he goes to the father, she goes to the father, she goes to the neighbors, she goes to friends, she goes to, let us say, official members of the community, like politicians. What did you do to prevent this from happening? Nothing. What could you have done? Well, maybe we should have done the following. So suddenly, you see, the whole thing changes. Because you see the act of commission swimming in an ocean of acts of omission. And everybody is not guilty. But everybody shares his or her part of responsibility. I, for what I did wrong, <laughs> you, for what good you did not do. What could have done? So then comes um, Act 3. The wise person asks everybody to hold hands, lifting up their hands, bowing their heads. And she says, I would like in the name of all of us to express our deepest apology to, now to whom? That's the interesting thing. It's not to the victim. Nor is there any expression of distance to the perpetrator in this Act 3. Apology to the community for not having acted as a community. A community is a setting where everybody is responsible for everybody else. Shared responsibility. And that implies not only acts of commission that should not be done, but also acts of omission that should have been done. Act number three passed. We come to act number four, where the wise person says, now let's turn to the future. And I ask all of you, what is to be done in order to prevent this from happening? And I start with you, perpetrator. What do you think is the kind of punishment. You'll have to do something that will bring you back to community. The kind of thing that would restore you. And the perpetrator will then generally propose some work for the community. But the work should be related, should be related to what the perpetrator has done in offending the victim. So let us say that he broke a window pane to steal some money. Well, maybe that was a rich man, and maybe the adequate compensation would be to work free of charge as a gardener <laughs> in the victim's garden. Maybe the victim would take care of the lunch. <laughs> so there is an agreement 
that the point of compensation has been reached. Now, then mother, father, neighbors, friends, politicians, what are you going to do to prevent similar things from happening? And also maybe to help restoring the damage that has been done. The whole community mobilized. And the point then ending with the vice person saying, beware of the fact that by the end of the week, I'll visit all of you <laughs> and see how far you have come along the road. And then you see, Molly, comes stage number five, which is the final one, the final act, which is one of beauty. Somebody took notes of the conflict between perpetrator and victim. What was it the perpetrator wanted and what was it the victim wanted? Not to be wounded, not to be robbed, whatever. And this sheet of paper is then held up. Somebody comes with a match. It's put to fire. And there has to be some wind splendid the ashes to all corners of the world. And that wind is guaranteed in the beautiful islands of Hawaii. Now, the symbol is, of course, with this, we are through with the conflict. That's no longer with us. Now the work is to restore the community. In the restorative justice, the perpetrator will find his place and the victim will find his place. But what is restored in restorative justice it's not the individual person, that's the Western individualism. But the community, including that individual. Well, I'm only to put it mildly, I find it beautiful. Mm. I find it light years beyond our concept of punitive justice. And what I have seen in the Polynesian area, which is quite large, you know, it is, of course, Tahiti, it is Muroa. Uh, also called New Zealand. It is um, Rapa Nui, also called Easter Island. And very many Polynesians in the southwestern part of the United States. I mentioned Hawaii, and of course next to Hawaii we have the two Samoas, and one of them under US, and the other one Western Samoa the independent somewhere. It's an enormous area and territory <laughs> covering much more than um, standard maps of Western civilization in Europe, but of course mainly watered. And um, I think when one talks about restorative justice, that kind of indigenous route should be made clear. So let me just finish by saying, I think one should be careful and not vulgarizing this concept by reducing it to a circle of people sitting, focusing mainly on the perpetrator. On the perpetrator repenting what he did, confessing, repenting, and then designing plans for how the perpetrator is brought back to society. I think it's very important this distinction between acts of omission and acts of commission. And the distinction between restoring the perpetrator and restoring the community. So let me stop at that point.
And and so, Mr. Galton, as it concerns a cultural paradigm, um, would it be possible that in our Western world uh, we're so ingrained at this point or have been in an individualistic and isolated worldview that that has prohibited us from, to some degree, on some levels, I'm not wanting to generalize too too broadly because I know that there's some powerful work by people such as Kate Pranis and, and and many people here in the United States who who are in that element that you are describing so eloquently. But I, I'm wondering if you could speak just briefly about a cultural paradigm and how it informs uh, this conversation and and the ensuing practices of of rest- what what can be called restorative justice. Well, thanks for the challenge. You <laughs> see, we need a, a key concept, and you were mentioning it, Western individualism. Let's call it I culture. And as you know in English, that I is a capital I indeed. And as opposed to a we culture, not a Polynesian culture, it is very much a we culture. There is a we-ness to everything. Aloha is the spirit that permeates us all. And aloha is not only permeating human beings, but also nature and makes us one with nature. But let me jump from that, which sounds so different from the West, to some experiments I made myself. Uh, let us say at the university or in the community or whatever, you have a perpetrator and you're victim. And I've been explaining Ho'oponopono and somehow there's a decision why don't we try it. And these people we bring together, let us say around 20 in a circle. It doesn't have to be a table. They're sitting in a circle. And the circle, of course, symbolizes equality. The wise person is not sitting in any way higher than others. Sitting there, looking at each other, and the shape of the circle already symbolizes the community. And my experience is, you see, that you can create a community of the people present. You can simply create it. And they may then promise to help each other and to set things straight, right, ho'oponopono, in other words. Ponopono means very straight and right, when you double it. So, I am optimistic about that. Even if it is true that in Western society, we have less community we feeling, and we have much more individualism, and then we have this idea of guilty and innocent. Whereas in the we culture, there is nobody who is totally guilty and nobody is totally innocent. Since there is this idea of shared responsibility made clear through by bringing in acts of omission. I think the basic point would be, Molly, to make us sensitive to what we could have done and didn't do. What could have been done, but was not done. Well, let us take a major happening in Western history. Let us take Hitler coming to poverty. 
Nazism, Shoah, the horrors perpetrated on the Jews in Europe. World War Two. What could have been done and what's been done? One answer stands out immediately. Revising the Versailles Treaty. The Versailles Treaty was extremely unjust. Not in saying that the cause might have been in Germany. There was the Schieffen plan and all of that. But in making the German population guilty. They had a part of responsibility, but basically it was, if you will, a political game among royal imperial houses. Most of it actually collapsed after the war. The German collapsed. Indeed, the Austrian collapsed. Uh, the French had collapsed before. Uh, the Turkish one collapsed, the Sultan. Uh, what survived was the eternal one, the British one. But uh, otherwise, you can say that what actually happened, in a sense, proves the point. That was where the responsibility was located. The Versailles Treaty cut that one wrongly, falsely. So imagine that five years after the Versailles Treaty in 1924, there had been the agreement to modify it consistently and basically and deeply. Well, I think it can almost safely be said that Hitler would have no chance to come to power because that was his major argument. Now, what's the thinking behind that? Well, the thinking behind scuttling it would have been to see Europe as a community that had gone wrong. And there was a glaring act of omission not doing what should have been done to the Versailles Treaty, but just letting it continue and being used to the very end by Hitler as the argument he wanted. Up till the final vote after he had gotten power in 30 January 1933, and there was a referendum in March 1933, showing very clearly that he had the majority uh, in a coalition. Now, let me put it this way, that majority would have been impossible if he hadn't been able to use Versailles as an argument. So if you have this perspective, you look through history in a different way. What could have been done, not only what was done. And you take what you learned from that one and you put it into the future. Is there anything we could do now that is not done that could have been useful? I just did an article about the U.S. terrible deficit, debt, lack of growth, and the suffering of about 16% of the U.S. population. And I'm reminiscent of um, Franklin Roosevelt in a similar situation, coming up with a Tennessee Valley Authority, a TVA, a very imaginative, inspiring strike of genius. Whereas the U.S. Congress now only does some little gaming, um, adjusting the votes between Republicans and Democrats of various types and sizes to the kind of dollars that could be increased from taxes and decreased by cutting expenditures. So what would be the thing that could have been done? 
<laughs> what is it done? Well, I call it the um, Municipality Uplift Authority, the MUA, lifting up the poorest municipalities where the poorest people live. And that can be done by giving them microcredits for more small companies that generate food and water, housing and clothing, health and education at affordable prices. It would not be the market system. It would be subsidized by credit, but those credits would have to be paid back. And much experience seems to show that after some time, people who benefit from that, their suffering stops, they gain in dignity, and they become members of the ordinary economy and the U.S. domestic demand would increase. Okay, I'm now making propaganda for something I believe in. <laughs> no doubt uh, about that, but I think that TVA meant a lot, and that a MUA, Municipality Uplift Authority, could mean a lot. Mm. you find it in my editorial tomorrow on the www transcend.org slash TMS for Transcend Media Service. Mm. You can read the details. It makes me think a bit about um, where we are in this moment too with uh, specific to the criminal justice system. Um, and just one last question around this topic, Mr. Galtung. Uh, how, how do you feel we are are doing in bridging and what else might we consider besides obviously the very important point of what we could be doing and learning from what has come before um, especially here in, in, in the United States um, as a punitive system and so many people in this very moment working so diligently on the ground to bring restorative systems in integrating and not uh, not necessarily even trying to uh, teach the people within the system, but to do as you're saying, to transcend and to join together to create a third place, uh, an alternative, a place that, that goes beyond what has been seen before yet. So uh, w would you mind speaking just briefly, and then we'll, we'll break to some, some comments and questions from our live audience, our live circle about bridging right in this moment here in the U.S. You know, my own experience from prison tells me that there are very different types of crimes and very different life situations that enter into them. So one should be careful. I think you need a session with 20 people sitting in a circle for each criminal. And that is very important <laughs> that the perpetrator <coughs> faces the victim and that something emerges that reconciles perpetrator and victim and not only perpetrator to himself, to the state, and then something is done for the society. So let me take one example, which is the major type of U.S. crime right now. Crime, quote-unquote, has to do with drugs. And, of course, one reads with interest the votes in Colorado and uh, Washington State, and one comes to the conclusion that maybe the voters there have been more realistic. 
in uh, liberalizing the laws. And um, you can then say that you have a glaring act of omission, the possibility of drawing the line at a different point. But then you would ask the question, why is the line drawn that way? Why are they so afraid of marijuana? Why are they more afraid of marijuana than of tobacco and alcohol? When you know perfectly well that they are major killers. If you take the two key killers in society, in the US society, it's tobacco and high tension, high blood tension. Okay, that high blood tension can come from very many sources. I guess most of them can be called stress. Now, let us look at it. I think they're afraid of it because marijuana seems to people high up in society to indicate not that somebody wants a drug and wants to puff a pipe or a cigar or a cigarette or wants a good drink and be intoxicated as a kind of individual thing, maybe doing it together in a party. But that marijuana could lead to a different style of life. That the people who are smoking pot are indicating something else, namely an alternative lifestyle. And that alternative lifestyle has to be nipped in the bud as a threat to US society. I would say that here we have a major omission, namely, let us get, so to speak, the dog out of the bag and let us look that dog in the eyes and let's simply discuss it. What is it we are afraid of in connection with Mariana? Um, could it also be that the US could be enriched by having some alternative social constructions on the side. There are many of them already. The US is a very multifarious society. But <clears throat> what I'm missing, the act of omission, is the open dialogue about it. And for that, we would need many circles of 20 persons. And maybe those circles could be focused on drug abusers. Maybe those who have done their duty in prison, maybe those who have been weaned, those who have been so-called cured, maybe those who are not, so that their voices can be heard very clearly. Now, we are, of course, aware of the fact that there is another element to it, and that is the racial element. People engaged in the drug trade are overwhelmingly black. That means that this is a way of reintroducing Jim Crow in a different form. And having chain gangs doing work that can be hired from prisons that are on the stock exchange. In other words, simply making prison work a commodity available to society at the best price. Now, this, of course, has very much to do with the fact that the U.S. has per capita the highest prison population in the world. Mm -hmm. So here we suddenly have prison population, criminality, 
big syndrome of drugs and their various kinds of functions, and we have race. All of it stirred together in a big disagreeable pot, and this pot is well known to the U.S. I think one should take the lid off it and simply get the factors out and let 1,000, 10,000 circles blossom and have somebody collect the findings for our general consideration. Mm. Mm. That was right. a big one. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> it, yeah. it, I had a vision, Mr. Galtung, of, of, uh, of one of the things I just need to share that has been prevalent in the two seasons of this ongoing telecouncil is a very strong hunger and desire on the ground in communities of people expressing uh, 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 wanting to create something like this. And, of course, we have this dastardly uh, tendency in the Western world towards intellectualization and seems to be one of the barriers that, that we've had in thinking that we have to think too much about how to create a circle like this and whereas it could be right under our noses. I mean, there's always something that we can It could be work. right under our noses. It could be organized immediately, spontaneously. Right. Well, I would love for us now to open up the circle. And I've been so moved by so many of your questions. Um, there's been a, a great amount of web, web questions submitted. And I'd just like to... Um, to just say to you, Bev Titus, I know that you're here in the circle with us today, and it would be a great honor to hear from you if you're so comfortable, without any pressure, certainly. Uh, if you do feel so inclined to ask your question, make your comment live, do press 1 on your telephone keypad. And for those of you who are interested also in asking a question or making a comment observation, now is the time to press 1 on your telephone keypad. Um, and Bev, I was deeply, deeply moved by uh, what you submitted, and it looks like you're willing to come live with us. So a warm welcome to you, Bev. You're live. Thank you. Um, my question was how you would see restorative justice uh, in regards to what happened on September 11th, the terrorist attacks. My daughter, Alicia, was a flight attendant on the second plane, and there are so many people whose lives were affected by that, and how do we begin when both the victim and the perpetrator are not present? Um, there's just so much to consider. Well, I'm deeply touched by your question. And um, we are talking about 9-11, indeed. Now, when you have a disaster like that happening, and I am touched by the fact that your daughter was one of the victims, when you have a disaster like that, one experience is we have to know the facts. We simply have to know what happened. You know, the term 
that was used in South Africa when they started reconciliation was TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Let's get the truth. Let's get the facts. Because if you don't have the facts, there will always be this kind of unsatisfied feeling is there something here that has been withheld from us and so on. Mm-hmm. When it comes to 9-11, there are many hypotheses. I don't want to go into those. I can only tell you one thing. I know a lot about it, and I have not made up my mind. But I know that there is space for much, much more inquiry and investigation. So what happens then when we think we have the facts? Do the facts release us from the sorrow? No, they don't. To get the facts is a necessary, not a sufficient condition. What can release us from the sorrow? I think there is one question that could be asked. Could it have been avoided? Yes. It will not make your daughter come alive but it may have importance for other and similar situations. In other words, the facts are facts and have to be accepted as such. But we can put the facts to use for the future for others in similar situations by engaging in the agonizing inquiry, how could it have been avoided? About this, several of us will have some use And uh, I think I stop at that point. I only would like to share my deep commotion with you. Thank you. Mm. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, Bev. I'd just like to welcome Tina. Tina, you're you're live and welcome. Thanks, Molly. And... um, Thank you, John, so much for everything you've said. Um, I'm really deeply touched um, just by your um, commitment to uh, restorative justice and transforming the punitive and the retributive um, ways of justice. And I'm also really interested in Ho'oponopono. My son and daughter-in-law actually are living in Hawaii now, and I'm going to go visit them. Uh, And I wondered if you had any recommendations of um, ways to learn more about it, you know, for someone who's kind of on the outside but very interested, um, being me in uh, restorative justice um, processes and and, uh, transforming things. Well, thank you, Tina. You see... Don't let me try to say that there is just one formula for Ho'oponopono. I think it's being created all the time. And I think the original version (coughs) is much more spiritual than the presentation I gave you in five stages or five acts. You could imagine the we culture, the aloha feeling being deepened as a condition for participating in it. And that is when that one is deep enough that the Ho'oponopono mechanisms, to put the cynical term into it, 
uh, will start working. Mm. But you simply have to approach the Hawaiian community and ask them, and uh, the moment you do it, you will get different kinds of points of advice. You will find Poka Lainui extremely helpful in that regard. He is a leading person in that community. And it's a community that should not be seen as unified and being a one view only. But he would serve as a very good guide. Poka, P-O-K-A, Lainui, L-A-E-N-U-I, also known as Hayden Burgess. But I think he prefers his name, Poka Lainui. So Tina, that is one answer to you. Thanks for your question. Thank you, and I hope your cold gets better. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Uh-huh. That, that's, that's getting better all the time, no problem. Hmm. Thank you, Tina. You should have heard me yesterday. It would not have been easy. <laughs> okay, I'd like to welcome Working Liesl. on the contradiction, you see. Uh-huh. Welcome, Liesl. You're live. Liesl, are you there? Hi, I am here. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, um, thank you also, Johan, for um, presenting today, um, how, how you would maybe recommend, I mean, there's such a contradiction with the structure of um, punitive justice and breaking down that structure in order to um, bring about more of a, as I imagine, grassroots approach to restorative justice and how that might, I mean, there's no way to get rid of the, the structure in the, um, that we have, but in order to work with it, do you have any maybe thoughts on how to break into that in a, you know, in a, a mutual uh, respect for both structures? Um, did I get you right? You said environmental justice? What was that? Did you say environment? Environmental justice? No. Um, did you say that? Puni- I, I don't think I did. <laughs> no, okay. But, okay, um, then I misunderstood you. Then just okay. repeat your question in a short sentence. Um, how to interact with the structure that we already have for punitive justice in order to, um, you know, with a grassroots approach to um, restorative justice, how, how we can approach the structures that are already in place. It could be a both and, you see. In some cases in Hawaii, somebody commits a crime, a crime of robbery, violence, not necessarily murder. And there is the law, it's against the law, there is the police, there is the prison, there is the court, arranged into court. All of that takes place. But at the same time, the judge can organize a ho'oponopono on the side. And um, I don't have any statistics about it, unfortunately. But I have been told by very informed people that the combination is totally possible. That ho'oponopono does something restorative that the punitive justice is not able to do. 
But at the same time, our culture is very punitive-oriented, punishment-oriented. So there is a feeling that if you have a Ho'oponopono, and all the parties walk off, well contented and happy and reconciled to each other, and the community is functioning again, and the perpetrator has uh, contributed with some extra work, then he gets off the hook too easily. That is deeply ingrained into us. So that argument could be put in favor of a both and. And I think we need experiments with this, you see. We simply Mm -hmm. need more experience to see how it works and isn't. I would be optimistic. Okay. Thank you very much. You're Mm. so welcome. Thank you, Liesl. And it reminds me of of some of the wayshores in this part of our world who are working alongside people within the system and and becoming very um, pleasantly surprised at the re- receptivity of judges, uh, the one such who was in tears here in, in this immediate community here in Colorado due to the communities showing such deep um, voice towards restorative systems and practices within a particular case here. And uh, mm-hmm. so the approach being um, to perhaps reach one's hand out um, to find what is working, what isn't working, and having a dialogue with with people who many are very much wanting the same thing as what restorative systems and practices at their true essence signify. And so that's just my two cents. And um, there's been so many rich conversations around this very thing. And I would recommend also the work of Dominic Barter and Restorative Circles. Um, Johan, if you are familiar with Dominic and Restorative Circles at all, I, I just time and again in our co- a rich conversation today have, have thought of, of what he is helping to bring forward um, as a bridge from what has come before and um, that is helping to integrate with existing systems. Are you familiar with his work, Johan? No, I cannot say. I know about it, but I'm not familiar. Uh-huh. I never thought to be. But you see, there are so many good things going on out there. Mm-hmm. So it's a question of doing exactly what you do, Molly, namely to bring them together and make them aware of each other. Mm-hmm. And each one has a point, so you can bring valid points together. I have a tendency to end up with both and. Those mm-hmm. are two favorite words for me. Uh, you see something as incompatible? Well, I mentioned as an example. Peru wants to own the territory. Ecuador wants to own the territory. How can both of them own the territory by making it binational? So you take the words both and, and then you ask yourself, what does this mean concretely? What does it mean concretely? Translate it into practice. And then when you, once you have said both and, you are of course willing to say both and, 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 because there are lots of things to add to it. To do that, you have to go outside your own civilization. And I'm deeply grateful for the, the events that made it possible for my Japanese wife and me to spend eight years in Hawaii 
and get acquainted with the um, Far Pacifica, the um, Pacific ways of doing things. Mm. And there are just much more to it than Ho'oponopono. And again, a feeling that the way we have ended up in the West with a strict dichotomy between guilty and innocent and punishing the guilty and letting the innocent go free is cutting the thing too sharply. The world isn't that simple. There is guilt in innocence and innocence in guilt. And why not find a term that is less loaded like responsible, responsibility. And that will sort of end with the idea that we're all responsible for each other. And in order to give meaning to that, we have to focus not only on the wrong acts of commission, but also on the good acts we didn't do. As Paul says in one of the letters to the Romans, the good things I want to do, I don't do. And the bad things I don't want to do, I do. In other mm. words, you find it also in Christianity. Well, I just I want to earmark for us all again the extraordinary work that you've brought through you your entire life and to invite people, if you haven't already, been to transcend.org. That's T-R-A-N-S-C-E-N-D dot O-R-G. And, of course, the media, uh, the blog piece uh, that you mentioned today, Johan, that will be posted tomorrow in the media section. And um, also just, just want to highly recommend books such as Transcend and Trans- Transform, which is an introduction to conflict work um, that came out in 2004 by Johan Galtung, um, Peace by Peaceful Means, Peace and Conflict, Development and Civilization, and also um, the many other works that Mr. Galtung has brought through him into the world. Uh, many of them listed at Amazon.com and, and very likely at your website as well, which is, again, Transcend. That's right, particularly uh, under the heading Transcend University Press, mm. where you have a lot of the most recent books. Mm-hmm. So please go to Transcend University Press. And does that have a specific website address? Um, just the same one on the TUP. Okay. Wonderful. So it is just as you said, www.transcend.org slash TUP. And so I'm TPU for the Transcend Peace University. We are teaching courses. Aha. Uh-huh. And, and can our people next find courses out more about that, that have very much to do with these topics start in March. Great. Well, it's been an extraordinary honor, and it's been wonderful conversing with you today, Johan. And I just want to thank you again on behalf of the Peace Alliance. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and I'm a part of the circle equally with you all. And it's so uh, heartwarming to have such a great turnout today for this special edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise. And I do hope that in the weeks to come you'll come back to the Do Peace website and you'll find a free archive of this particular council and you'll also find the schedule for our upcoming honored guests including next week's session with Kim Workman who is of Maori tradition and lives in New Zealand. So again, without any further ado, thank you Mr. Galtung for your life, for your work 
and may your cold be well, and may 2013 uh-huh, be no wonderful problem. for you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much indeed. All my pleasure. And we join in peace in a big, huge peace alliance. Thank you. Mm. Thank you so much. Good day, everyone.